Uh, thanks for coming today, especially if you're new, like Ellen said before. Uh, we're, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John. I think uh, Peter alluded to that or, or maybe stated explicitly. I don't know, Peter, if you did. But, um, but that's where we are. We are in chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. If you have a phone app or a Bible, feel free to turn there. This will all be on screen. Uh, today we start kind of a mini-series within the series of John. Uh, it's that time that Jesus uh, interacted with a woman from Samaria at a well. Some of you I know are familiar with this story. Uh, it's going to be a three-part series, though. So today we're in the first 15 verses. Uh, I think it constitutes most of chapter 4, if I remember right. Uh, so it'll... Um, it just, we're just breaking it up just for the sake of time, honestly. It's one story, of course, but so much richness to it, so we'll uh, be here for a few weeks. Um, so, but if you're also here for a couple of weeks prior to this, we just got done looking at how Jesus interacted with a, a man named Nicodemus. I'm not going to recap all of that, but I think there is kind of a cool book ending here of sorts where you have a guy in his 60s, he's a religious elite, more majority culture guy, and then you have this unnamed woman from Samaria uh, there is definitely a sense to which, you know, uh, chapters 3 and 4, you know, suggest that Jesus is here for everybody. Uh, book of, the book of Acts does this as well, if you've read that before, how the gospel after Jesus' resurrection goes to kings and Caesars and governors, but also poor cripples, unnamed cripples on the side of the road. Uh, there's no disparity uh, with how, who the gospel goes to, that uh, Jesus loves all, God loves all. And so I think you get a sense for that here, that this new thing is breaking into the world through Jesus, and uh, all types of people are being confronted with the truth. So have that in mind as we go. But let's read, uh, to begin here, we're going to look at uh, the idea of heavenly water today versus earthly water. Uh, kind of have that in mind thematically as, as we read, um, but we'll also talk about some other themes too. But verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so uh, a quick uh, geography and history lesson with some theology mixed in, but this will kind of give you some bearings. I know some of you are uh, privy to this, others of you are not. But if you think of a kind of a column-like landmass, so I have a map here that might be hard to read, but um, you can see Samaria in the middle. Uh, from north to south, you have the three regions of Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, and the Sea of Galilee, uh, Capernaum, that's where Jesus grew up. Uh, Samaria is in the middle, and then further south is Judea, which is where uh, Jerusalem is and where Jesus died. 
uh, and, and rose again, where Bethany is, places like that. Um, so uh, Samaria is right in the middle. It's a province, uh, uh, essentially. Samaria was where the Samaritans lived, which you probably could have guessed linguistically. Uh, but Samaritans were descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom, that split off from the southern kingdom of Judah centuries prior. Uh, but as many of you know from uh, the Old Testament, their story, the northern kingdom story, was a story just wrought with uh, tragedy, stubborn rebellion, sin, and initially lots of divine patience uh, from God. But eventually God given punishment and exile at the hands of the Assyrians from which they never really came back uh, because the Assyrians intermarried with them. So the Jews uh, of the northern kingdom lost their ethnic identity, the Israelites did, and much of their culture and history and tradition with it. So um, a lot of people consider that a very cruel way or thing to do for your captives is to intermarry with them because you sort of eliminate their identity and their traditions. The Assyrians were known for that historically, uh, but, uh, and that's what happened with these, uh, these Israelites. So they never really returned, even though there were uh, returnees, of course, which is why there are Samaritans here. They never returned in the same state. And so the Jews of the southern kingdom then, uh, of Judah and Benjamin, the two, the two kingdoms that constituted the southern kingdom, they historically and up to this point in history had disdained for them, the Samaritans, because uh, of their uh, because of their history. They, they're sort of, they looked at them as unclean and half-breeds and outcasts who were living the consequences of their ancestral actions, so to speak. All right, but here's the big thing, though. Uh, the, this, this isn't just history, it's, it's theology. Exile, uh, in a lot of ways, the Bible is a story of exiles. Uh, it, it, it's a theme on repeat. If you've read the Old Testament, um, whether it's individuals or small families or entire nations, uh, going way back to Adam and Eve who experienced this first when they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, uh, the Samaritans, are, they're, just, they're just another iteration in a long line of uh, human failure and expulsion uh, from the very presence of God that goes again all the way back to Adam and Eve. So the idea here is that whether it's the woman of Samaria, whether it's the story of the northern kingdom, whether it's Adam and Eve, uh, whether it's um, Ruth, if you know her story, uh, as an individual and her family uh, leaving for the famine, there's just, we, they're all microcosms of us. Uh, we are exiles too from God. Uh, again, going all the way back to the beginning, we've sinned. And uh, I was like talking to one of my kids about this the other day. I think they were asking me, I forgot the question, but I think they were asking me why we can't see God. It's actually, kids always ask the greatest, greatest theology questions, but I think it was something like that. Like, why can't we see him? And, um, and I, part of my answer was this. It's, it's because of exile. It's because we've sinned. It, it, this explains why we might doubt his goodness, even as Christians, um, why we feel so far from him sometimes. Even, even though, as Christians, your exile is ended because of Jesus, and we'll talk about that today, we're still in the in-between, right? And we can have days of feeling close to God and days of feeling very distant. And the reason is you are exiled. Uh, no one is in Eden anymore. Uh, and, and the way back, the way God offers a way back to him is through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As we just sang about, we'll see here in John 4 and in the coming weeks as well. So having this in mind makes this interaction so relevant and probably more powerful that, because we're just like her. Uh, hated, exiled, hopeless, far from God, you know, fill in whatever you want there. But um, her story is ours, ours is hers. And 
And we might find ourselves asking similar questions about God and, and the nature of salvation. So to help us see this, I want to walk us back through this passage from this angle. Uh, why is she so surprised? All right, so as you just heard, she's quite taken aback by what Jesus is doing and saying. Uh, but I think this is important because within the shock a lot of times within the left turns of the narratives of the Bible, that's where we find our rich theology. And I think this is uh, one of the, the places we do see it too uh, in John 4. So uh, to, to start off then, we'll start with the thing I've kind of been alluding to already and that maybe is most, the most obvious because of John's um, sort of explanatory parenthetical here. But verse 9, or first, the shock is that she's shocked that this is happening at all, that Jesus is there as a Jewish man, talking with her uh, Samaritan woman. This is uh, hard for us to feel the, um, the radicalness of this, uh, but we have to try to. Uh, she, she is saying, how is this even possible? This never happens. Jews having dealings with Samaritans, mingling with Samaritans, talking to Samaritans, and even exuding any kind of kindness uh, whatsoever. All right, so verse 9 again. How is it? That you would you ask for a drink for me, a Samaritan. Uh, and then John's again, John the author includes this for the reader, which is kind of cool, it's helpful. Um, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is historical, this is biblical, this is theological. All right, so how can this be happening? This, if you, and we'll talk about this, but if you've read the Bible, this is a bit rule-breaking as well. This just um, coming off the heels of the Old Testament um, Something new is something new is here. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, new wine is here. So you have to have a new wineskin to receive this new wine, or it will burst the wineskins. It will break them, the old wine, it'll break them open. So your heart has to be ready to receive newness over and against the oldness of the Old Testament. Okay. So I'll start by saying this. I know a lot of you are coming at this story from different perspectives. Um, some of you have read this before, maybe many of you, I don't know. Um, I'll share a part of my background here as well in saying this. I don't want to assume this is true for all of you, but, but I think this is important. Uh, sometimes this story gets reduced to basically a parable about uh, racism or the mistreatment of women and how Jesus is overturning all of that. Uh, and even though there might be some truth to that, I'm not like, you know, I, I think there's historical truth to that. I think we'll see next week as well. Um, there, there's... There's an undercurrent of some of that happening here. Um, but to make it all about that is just way too reductionistic. And in some ways, it's just a flat-out misreading of not just John 4, but the whole biblical storyline up to this point. All right, and by this I mean, there's a lot of things I could say here about that, but primarily this. From a broader biblical perspective, the Jews did not have dealings with the Samaritans because they weren't supposed to. Very important thing to understand about the Bible here that might be new to some of you. The Jews did not have dealings with the Samaritans because their own law precluded it. They weren't supposed to have dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, Leviticus 20.24 is one of the many places you see this, but this is the, the main place you see God instituting a um, law of separation of the Jews from other people in the Bible. So where, where God says, I am the Lord who has separated you Israelites from other people who are not Israelites, that you should be mine. It's, it's a symbol of uh, claiming a people for himself and purifying them. Okay, so separation was a lawful thing. 
for a Jew to keep in step with. Uh, Samaritans had Gentile blood, non-Jewish blood in them, because remember, they intermarried with the Assyrians, and so they were unclean. Uh, God commanded them to separate. It was part of his redemptive plan to do this for a time. Okay, so although that doesn't exonerate the Jews for any superiority complexes they held, any arrogance, any mistreatment or racist or misogynistic attitudes or cruelty they showed to the Samaritans, even though it doesn't exonerate them for any of that, the Bible is basically moving us from one thing to another, from a time of separation to a time of not that, from a time of ethnic separation to this story for a reason, not because Jesus is keeping the law or reclaiming the true purpose of it, but because he's breaking it. Jesus is not doing what Leviticus 20.24 is saying, okay? Maybe hearing it that way sort of adds to the shock, right? So she has shock for certain reasons. Uh, Sometimes reading it this way and just realizing, well, what's the background here, biblically and theologically? Jesus is doing something that the law didn't prescribe. And he has every right to do it because he's the one that wrote it. He's the son of God, right? If you're familiar with the food laws of the Old Testament, how the Jews couldn't eat uh, pork and shellfish and things like that, this is where all this comes from as well, where God says there's different kinds of food and there's different kinds of people, and they overlap. And so what you eat reflects what type of person you are at this point in redemptive history. And so later in Mark 7, where Jesus says, I'm declaring all foods clean, I'm changing the Old Testament law, the rules are changing. When he does that, he's also leveling the playing field ethnically. There is no distinction anymore, right? And what comes in between those things is Jesus. Even if you don't, like, at that point, know exactly what that means, uh, it helps just to start there with the big picture, that in between the differences is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's changing things. And again, there's theology in the shock of this. Well, how can this be? How can a Jew hang out with a Samaritan? Or maybe our shock is, how can Jesus not be keeping this law? How can he be breaking part of it or not keeping it? How can he change it? Like he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Moses said this, but I say this. I'm tweaking it, changing it. Uh, Moses said, keep the food laws. I'm declaring them all clean. Uh, Moses said this here as well. Uh, but things are changing. There's, there's newness here. All right, so although God always had an eye on the nations, this is basically what the purpose of the separation laws were about. And keep in mind, I'm taking a huge branch of like, Biblical theology and summarizing this in like a couple of sentences. So there's a lot more to say, but if you get this, you get like 99% of it. Is that God, for a time, separated people from other people, Jews from others who were not Jewish, Israelites from people who were not Israelites, to be a constant reminder of this bottom line, that all people, Jew and Gentile, are separated from God. Okay, this is a big thing to know about the God of the Bible. The Christian God is he loves symbolism. He loves taking physical things and making them signs of spiritual realities. And this is one of them. You see, any like breakdown in relationship that you have with another person is a sign or a symbol of the greater problem that you have the greater, with God or the greater breakdown you have in your relationship with your creator. That's the primary, the vertical, The secondary is the horizontal. So both are important. God's not taking his eyes off the ladder, but having the hierarchy in place is extremely important for us to understand what in the world's going on here 
in the Bible. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is, where's the theology in, in the shock, right? So remember, when Jesus comes then, to quote John 1.17, he doesn't come to bring or continue the law. The, the Bible says that Moses brought the law, but Jesus brings grace. A New Testament built on different rules. So, this small glimpse then in John 4 of a Jew and a Samaritan hanging out together is a sign of testamental or covenantal change. That, or the, the epoch is changing. It's, it's a sign of a time when God and sinners would fully reunite. Not by our obedience to the law, which separates, as we see in Leviticus 20, 24 and other places. Not by our obedience to the law, but by Jesus' blood. And Jesus' blood is the thing that unites. Or to use some other language, um, to kind of go back to uh, John's parenthetical, God has no dealings with sinners like us. Is the, uh, or sorry, Jews having no dealings with Samaritans is the same thing as saying God has no dealings with sinners, uh, with people like us. It, it's, that, that's the horrific reality that ethnic separation symbolized uh, in, in the Old Testament. But, but keep in mind, there is a symbol and there's a thing that it points to, right? And so when Jesus comes then and he's remed- changing this, it's not just a sign that Jesus is here to teach us how to get along with other people. It's a sign that he's here to do that in order to symbolize this, the vertical. Doing this shows what's upstream from it at the headwaters of the river. And the headwaters is that God is doing something in the world to reconcile his enemies, us, to himself. That's the bigger problem that you and I have. And so the second shock then kind of builds on this a little bit. We'll talk about how the gospel's in this. But to start here, we see the background. We see the change. We see how Jesus is bringing not the law, but grace. And how that is the unifying substance of, of redemptive history. The second shock, though, is that she's shocked that Jesus is offering water but has nothing to draw it with. So remember that where she's like, um, well, actually, let me, let me just read it again. This is a really important paragraph to see. So verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who, it's, who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, so like we're talking about before, Jesus is continuing to position himself against other concepts and ideas here. Um, I think I said a few weeks ago that, um, that when the Bible talks about good news, it doesn't just say this is good news uh, for these reasons, for these good reasons. It says it's good news because it's not bad news, which I know is super obvious, but that's how the Bible talks. It, it, it says this is good, but it's also good because it's distinctly not this over here. And this is kind of what's happening here in John 4 as well. There's heavenly water, and that's good news. But there's also good news that you are not saved by earthly water. And we'll talk about what that means here if it's not clear yet. But we're supposed to see the contrast and how Jesus is not diluting the idea of the, mixing the two together, diluting uh, the idea of heavenly water, but, but keeping two distinct lanes in order to tell the one story 
of being saved by grace, not by our works. And one, one of the ways you see that is that the ways the water is acquired is different. The way we get the water, the earthly water or the, the, or the heavenly water that Jesus gives, the way you get it is distinctly different. And you see it in, in the shock. It's her, her surprise again that reveals the point. And that is Jesus has nothing to draw water with. There's, he didn't bring like the right equipment. There's no buckets or whatever he would lower into this well to, to pull the water out, right? And she's noticing this. And John, the author, is taking time to write that in. It's important then, right? There's no mistakes in the details of the Bible. So the point is this. Earthly water from the well was worked for by the woman. But the heavenly water that Jesus gives is not worked for, it is given. Do you guys notice the difference? Another way to say it would be to look at the gift language strewn throughout the passage. Uh, There is movement from Jesus asking her for water to her asking him for water and him giving the water, right? Uh, that's, That's how the passage pivots. It starts by Jesus being thirsty and asking, but not even saying that she does give him water. Uh, it, it quickly pivots away to Jesus saying, if you knew who I was and who it is that's saying to you, give me water, you would have asked me and you would have been better off for it. That's the better thing is for us to ask God things versus him to ask us things. Okay, so we'll talk about this in an applied manner in a minute, but God is not asking you, uh, uh, things of you in order to be saved. It's very easy to live that way. Many Christians do. But the essence of the gospel is not God asking you to get your life together and to give him water uh, or to impress him or others. The essence of the gospel is him giving you a gift wrapped up with the bow of his blood. And in in this case, it is uh, described as as water. Even here with the the mention of Jacob's well, I'm not going to go into this in too much depth today, but Whenever she's talking about Jacob, that's a figure from the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Uh, Jacob was an ancestor of Jesus, which is kind of cool. So basically when she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus doesn't really answer that. But we know, yes, he's much greater. Uh, he's his ancestor, which means he's a true and better version of what Jacob was. And how is she remembering Jacob here? As a giver a giver of a field, a giver of an inheritance, and a giver of a well, and a giver of sustenance and water. And so the the idea here theologically is Jesus is picking up on that, being another version of that, but on a much higher level, not with physical water, but with a type of spiritual water that comes from heaven and satiates the hunger of sin, the hunger for eternal life, the hunger for the ending of our exile from God, that we all face hopelessly until God does something about it. So yet again here then, we're seeing a stark law, grace, contrast, Old New Testament contrast here. And Jesus helps her to see it by first asking her for water, which is like what the law does. The law says, do something for God. Keep these laws or else face the consequences, right? Face exile. Uh, Leviticus 18.5 is a very important verse to know that Paul quotes in Galatians 3, which says um, that when you do the law, there is, uh, there's a benefit, but also a consequence if you don't. It says, do the law and then you will live. 
keep the commandments of God, then you will find life. It's conditional. But he positions that against the gospel to say it's different now with Jesus. With Jesus, it's believe in him, and then you will be saved. He is the new intermediary. And so you see that here as well when you look at how the water comes into the world differently and the source is different. Uh, It would have been better, right, for her if she would have asked for the water that can't be worked for, only received. Um, So it's really important to see this. Uh, If if you knew the gift of God, he says, you would have asked me. Uh, That is to say, stop working. Uh, Put your bucket down and receive the water that is impossible to earn. It comes from a place you can't even go, heaven. And, and this is how the gospel confronts us. It, it reveals itself to us in a way where we see it in contrast to our works. There's a type of water that's worked for. There's a type of water that is impossible to work for. You just simply cannot blend those. They are impossible to blend. In other words, you cannot blend the idea of the gospel or your salvation partly with what God does for you and part with what, for what you do for him, how you live your life as a Christian. Is, is it good or not? Do, are you reciprocating something back to him? You cannot do that. that. That is to go back to the bucket, earthly water idea. But Jesus is saying, ask me. Stop working. This is what the woman is coming to terms with, the Samaritan woman. And we're a lot like her. We, we do too. And you all are in different spots. Some of you are at the, at the very front end of hearing that gospel idea. Some of you are, are, are well into your journey, but this never goes away. This is, this is con- when Jesus enters into our, confronts us, brings his grace to us, it comes against our works, not in, not, not in unison with or in synergy with them. Robert Fair Capon says this, kind of like this idea, he says, So deep is our need sometimes to derive our identity from our own self-respect. So profound is our conviction that unless we watch our step, the watchbird will take away our name, that we will spend a lifetime trying to do the impossible rather than for even one carefree minute consent to having it done for us by someone else. Okay, what he's saying, and I would agree, this is the state of every human heart. Uh, the human heart has a, uh, is, is in a helpless spot, a hopeless spot, a spot of it, almost the impossibility of being able to ask for help. I don't know if you guys have ever found that or not. It's really hard for me to ask for help sometimes. Uh, and I mean that on a human level. But what this is saying is um, we cannot, pl- you cannot place you in the equation of salvation uh, because then it just gets, it, it gets impossible much harder to ask for help from God if, if you blend the two ideas. And I think this is really, really insightful. And um, I'm guessing you're all feeling this in different ways, and that's totally fine. But take this in. Is this true about, how is it true about you? Um, and how is this shaping your idea of the gospel? Jesus also then, I think, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically says this to that idea. The absence of something to draw the water with tells you everything you need to know about my gospel. That the heavenly water of salvation doesn't come by your religious or moral effort, but by my endless grace that you don't lift a finger to produce. That's what he's saying to the woman. That's why her shock of there's no bucket is so rich with theology because when it comes to you 
and what it means to be saved, there's no bucket before God. There's nothing you, you can do. There's nothing you can produce. No good you can accomplish. No mountain you can climb. No well you can reach down and pull water up from. There's, there's no bucket. There's no tool. There's no laws. There's just receiving from Jesus. Have you asked him to satiate your thirst? Uh, and, and if you have, he has. And we'll come, we'll come back to this, but that's the way the passage ends, right? Is give me this living water. Satiate, quench my thirst with your salvation. Save me alone because I can't save myself. No matter how good I am, on my best days, I'm still a billion miles from you. Uh, and we come to that place, we actually kind of get what he's saying here, right? All right, the last shock. Is she shocked that Jesus is asking her for a drink? In other words, he's, he's thirsty. All right, so I'm, I'm um, kind of go a little bit outside of what the woman's uh, thinking here. I'm kind of putting myself in this for a minute because this is one of my shocks. Uh, so kind of frame it that way. She's shocked that, you know, again, it's, it's this ethnic thing, right? That he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, that there's intermingling happening. There's a lot, there's a lot to that like we talked about before. Um, but have you ever been shocked in this passage that Jesus is thirsty at all or that he's weary or that there's a well or that there's this weird context, um, that this is a pit stop and not the destination? And why is John mentioning all of this? And if you haven't, that's fine. But th- this is w- one of my shocks to this is that uh, John takes the time to record that Jesus, the Son of God, got tired. Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, had thirst. Uh, so the, the sixth hour is uh, noon. So it's probably very hot. He was baking and he was tired. All right, so the question then is, why, you know, again, why had this conversation at a well uh, why I mention this state, I, I, I think before I get to that, I think that clearly this tells us that more is going on here than just Jew and Samaritan reconciliation because if that was the point, the setting makes no difference whatsoever. It doesn't matter, right? The place maybe does because that's where she lived, but the well and why is he weary and Jacob's, the whole mention of uh, Gen- Genesis and Jacob's well, all that's noise. If the point of this for you or somebody is uh, to get along with your uh, neighbors who are different from you, 90% of the passage is just noise. It doesn't make any sense what, why it's here. All right? But what this passage is more about than that, even though that's secondary and good, is it's about Jesus' discomfort. Like when you guys read this passage, you should see, blaring off the page, the, the idea that the Son of God is uncomfortable. He's thirsty. He is weary, he's tired, and he's hot, okay? And so the answer to the question of why does Jesus get weary and ask for a drink is because later in the story, he will get weary and ask for a drink again, right before he's about to take his last breath on the cross, which we read about in John 19, 28. Again, he says, I thirst, Moreover, both of these stories happen at the exact same time of day, at the sixth hour. So it was about the sixth hour when Jesus sat down at the well thirsty and talked to the Samaritan woman. It was also about the sixth hour when Jesus was given over to be crucified. Okay? So if you're tempted to think that that's just a coincidence, let me tell you, there is no coincidences 
when it comes to the cross prefigured in the Bible. See, John 4 is the crucifixion beforehand. John 4 is an anticipation of the most important part of the New Testament, which is when the Son of God died for our sins. It's hinted at, whispered. So again, I even go so far to say that the most important part of John 4 is that Jesus got thirsty, that Jesus got weary. Why? Because that's the most important part of the Bible, when he got thirsty and weary there. The most important part of the story is the Son of God was weak. He, he is himself the receipt behind the heavenly water. He's the how behind all forms of reconciliation, him here. His death is the reason behind law-grace contrasts. It's the essence of the New Testament itself. To put another way, at the cross, what this is saying is at the cross, we are quenched by someone else getting thirsty. That's the gospel, you guys. Not just that Jesus is saying, have my water, but he's saying, have my water when I'm thirsty. So Jesus' thirst becomes the context for her quenching. Does that make sense? It's his weariness and suffering that's the context for her getting the heavenly water. It's, see, our weariness is healed by him getting weird. This is why these things are in the Bible. We are not just saved without qualification or cost. You and I are saved by the Son of God being uncomfortable, dying, being stripped naked, baking under the sixth hour noonday sun, being separated from his Father so our exile can be remedied. You see how Jesus takes on the problem so it goes away from us? That's what the Bible's teaching. He's absorbing our sin. He's taking on darkness, taking on our thirst on the cross so we might be quenched forever. One sip of the gospel, you guys, is enough. One sip of Jesus is enough to take all of your problems away, your problem being separation from God and sin and death. But what John 4 teaches then with the presence of the mention of his thirst is substitutionary love. Jesus died as a substitute for you. He didn't just die as an example. He died in a thirsty way to fulfill John 4, to complete it. Because John 4 points beyond itself to this moment here. To take, on, to take on our weariness. And so, um, so this is how Jesus presents himself, you guys. Whether you're hearing this gospel for the first time or billionth, that, that God wants us to hear his voice in, in the Bible. And this is one of those places where it's not just an idea we're talking about. We're meant to hear God say, I love you so much that I, that I, I paid everything for you. I love you so much that I sent my one and only son to become thirsty that you might be satiated and quenched. That's how much I love you. It cost me everything and I was willing to pay it. See, if we miss that part of John 4, just for some kind of, you know, secondary, but in the grand scheme of things, kind of lame notion of interpersonal reconciliation, we've replaced the sun with the moon the river with the headwaters, the shadow with the substance. 
Even though that latter thing might be a Christian thing to think about and do, of course it is. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you need to get along with other people. That, that is a bucket into the well type spirituality where you're trying to give back to God a way of life that will turn his head to you and make him respond. But John 4 is about this moment. He thirsts twice in his ministry. Once here at the well, once at the cross. He's weary twice. There are two sixth-hour thirsting moments in the gospel. So that here in John 4, we're not landing there. We're seeing it, but launching off of it to this moment to say that's why those prior stories exist. Not to be islands or examples for you to follow, but to lead you to the actual gospel where God's son died in our place to bring us back to him and end our exile. So there's a reason why this story then kind of keeps pivoting away from us and buckets and work and even the woman toward Jesus himself and, and why the story takes the solution out of our hands entirely. And that is so we might be left with this statement that she has in verse 15, right, which is just this plea Sir, give me this water. For two reasons. One, that I might not be thirsty. But remember the other reason? That I might not have to come back here and work anymore. Isn't that cool? I want this water so my thirst will go away. And she's not totally connecting the dots here, obviously, but she's kind of. The second thing is, I don't want to have to work anymore. And that's exactly what the gospel is, you guys. The gospel is on a launch, a stepping stone to your spiritual work, uh, as, as if um, your Christian life is, is meant to prove to God that you actually believed or uh, prove to others that you were a good person. Uh, the gospel is actually you leave behind your bucket, you leave behind your work, and every single day of your life you rest, you receive, you drink of what you can't provide and earn yourself every day. Isn't that amazing news? Maybe kind of offensive? Should be both. Because it says to good people, um, not enough. People think they're good. No one's good. But people who think they are, it says, you're not. Uh, you're loved, but you're not. And nothing you ever, God's not impressed with you or me. That's actually kind of a relief too, isn't it? You don't have to worry about that. Stop trying to impress him. He's not impressed with you or me. He's God. But he loves you and he became like you in order to die for you in your place. I mean, is there anything that heightens our sense of self-worth more than that? Like, not that we're worthy in ourselves, but we're loved. I mean, to this, to this extreme, God bled for you and me. See, the response is, give me this water. And in an expanded way, I'll, I'll read this to close. This, I think, is the cry of a sinner at the end of herself. Sir, give me this water, please, so I will never thirst again or have to work anymore to appease God or to impress others or to justify myself or to overcome my spiritual exile. Save me from my sins. May your thirst mean my quenching. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, uh, for what it means to us uh, as Sinners as well, uh, help us to look at the cross and to see that's actually where you truly met with us at a well. 
and you talked with us, and you were kind to us, and you loved us by showing us your scars, uh, sort of like the dinner you had, Jesus, with your disciples the night before, and you pointed to your bloody body through bread and wine. Here you're pointing to your bloody body through a well and through the absence of a bucket and through your thirst and through your weariness. Uh, the reality is, Jesus, you came into the world to suffer a ton. Of the, the Old Testament says you are a man of sorrows. And we're seeing a bit of that here in John 4. Uh, a sorrowful Jesus uh, who is anticipating the sorrow he will experience when he's bleeding out on that cross at Calvary, uh, yet doing it in love for people like us. So help us to ask you, just to simply ask you every day, that's it, uh, to ask you for salvation, to ask you for relief, ask you for, to be quenched, um, and to know that the way we have that is by God spending everything. Uh, he paid the cost, we don't. He pay, you paid the cost, God. Jesus paid the cost, we don't pay it. Help us to respond in song and gladness and to leave here in peace, knowing we are loved to the uttermost in Christ. Amen.